You know, last week we saw in uh, verse 27 of the last chapter, which was chapter 9. See, my math is right there. Uh, we're in 10. That was 9 last week. 927. What did Paul say? He said, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And when you think about it, that's a, a pretty stunning statement, right? Paul is saying here that the reason he strove so diligently to stay spiritually disciplined was so that he would not be disqualified. Now, in chapter 10, he's, he proceeds to tell the Corinthians how they can avoid that outcome. But it's something that I think we need to look at as, as Christians who sometimes become very comfortable in our security. It's easy for us to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm saved and, and not worried about anything. But Paul many times gives us these warnings throughout his epistles. And this one is a very stern one to say, wait a minute, don't presume uh, so much. Don't be so familiar with, with God that you presume on his grace and, and, and believe if there is no evidence of your salvation that you're saved in this sense. And, and what we're going to see through chapter 10 is, is an encouragement for us. So what he does is he, he wants them to understand that they nor us should take for granted that we will finish the spiritual race well. And I want to talk, there's two ways to look at that. I mean, one is the ultimate fear that you were not a believer, you were somehow mistaken about that, and you end in tragedy for eternity. The other is that not all believers die serving God faithfully, okay? Um, God chastens those whom he loves, the Bible says. We know that we as Christians, even in this body, can fall into sin, and, and we, we can literally die in that sin. It doesn't mean we're lost. It just means that we didn't finish the race on this earth well. So every Christian, I believe we need to be mindful of this and not just coast through. We need to be intentional about finishing the race well for our Savior. And that's what Paul's talking about here. I think, again, sometimes we take it for granted. We're just, we're just coasting through. We don't really care much about what we do for God in this world. We just know we're getting to the sweet by and by one day, and that's all we care about. That's not the kind of race Paul ran nor the race he told us to run. If you remember last week, he, he said, I run to win. And so that's how you need to be running. And, and I need to be running. Run that we may obtain the prize of giving God all the glory. And so having said that, he uses the familiar story of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings to teach the people in Corinth um, about how they can avoid what happened to these people. So let's look at that. Verses one through five, he says this, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the spiritual, same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Well, what a text. They were delivered by God from Egypt. That's what he's talking about. That's one. They were delivered by God from Egypt. And we know that story is miraculous, right? They were sustained by God in the wilderness, yet they were overthrown by God because of their disobedience. 
So again, a stern warning. Paul is in a sense reminding them, hey, these people, these people knew God in a way that none of us really experience, right? That whole baptism, you know, being baptized by going through the Red Sea, it's a symbol, right? But basically, as they experienced all those things, we've all heard of a baptism by fire, right? Um, a lot of military guys are, were, are baptized in combat, kind of baptized by fire. You get that experience, and man, you, you're in, right? And that's kind of where the children of Israel were, right? They were, they were about to die at the hands of Pharaoh. They were up against the Red Sea. What happened? God parted that water, and they went through. Well, that's like a baptism by fire, right? And so they were baptized into Moses there at that moment, uh, identified with him as their leader. And when you think about it, these Hebrews had, had everything, right? They, they had the right religion. They were Jews. They had the right leadership. As the Bible says, they were led by a cloud by day and a pillar by night. That was God leading them. So they had the right leadership. They had the right experience. I just mentioned it. They, 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 they ate manna from heaven. They passed through the Red Sea. They drank water from a rock. Their clothes never wore out. I mean, on and on we see this miraculous provision of God. So they had the right experience, right? However, if having the right experience and being in, 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 doing everything right on the outside counted, they would not have been destroyed by God in the wilderness, right? And that's what Paul's trying to tell us here. Having all this stuff, this religiosity and all these outward things that you've experienced, right? Whether they be spiritual experiences or, 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 or whatever, those things on the outside are not enough. If that's all you've got, God requires not right experiences, not the right religion. God requires the right heart. Kind of what we said Sunday, right? Isn't that funny how the Bible has a theme from the Old Testament to the New Testament? It's pretty similar, right? God desires his people to have the right heart. And that right heart can only come from his grace through regeneration, being made new. Because we know that our old hearts are stony. Our old hearts are rebellious. Our old hearts are deceitful. So the only way we're going to have a right heart with God is if God does open heart surgery on us and replaces this old dead heart with a heart of flesh that beats for him. And that's the glory of the gospel. So as, as we look at this, these things are recorded for us as an example, Paul says. He's saying, hey, guys, listen to this kind of stuff. Listen to these kind of stories. Because the, the Holy Spirit sovereignly recorded these things as an example for us 2,000 years ago as Paul's writing and for us now, 2,000 years later, here in 2021, all of this should be taken to heart. So look, look at verse 6. He says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So what is that? What is he saying here? Literally, the people during that time were, were living for themselves, like a lot of people of this time, right? They worried more about what they ate, what they drank, their parties. This connotation literally is a sexual, the idea of rising up to play. It, it, it has this whole idea of uh, sexual immorality with the great feasts and orgies and things of, of that nature that were going on. And even in the days of Corinth, as we know, it fits really well because that was a very big problem, right? The sexual immorality that was going on. 
And so what, what God is showing us through his word is that times really don't change for humans. We're always sinful, <laughs> right? Our hearts desire things, and therefore what they desire, that's idolatry. When, when we desire something more than God, whatever that is, do you know that's idolatry? It may even be a decent thing, a totally neutral thing, or even a good thing, but if it takes the place of God for us, it is idolatry. If we are so overcome with it every moment of the day, that's all we're thinking about and investing in and talking about, we have just placed a God above the God. And that's the thing here. These people, and many today, worship their pleasure, their own good feelings, right? We want to do what we want to do. We want to eat, drink, and be merry. And Paul says, don't. <laughs> because he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. So again, he gives the, the, uh, the synopsis of what he's talking about for these people back then. And look what happened. And 23,000 fell in a single day. So he's saying, be warned. These things are recorded for our warning. Those people forgot about who God was. They only thought about themselves. They lived for themselves, participated in selfish, flesh-building things for themselves, rebelled against God by doing that, and 23,000 of them died in one day. He says, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. So he's talking about us. And these things are written for our instruction. Number 25, when Israel began to take wives of the Moabites and begin to adopt their idolatry, that's probably what he's talking about, the 23,000 that died in one day. You've also got Korah's rebellion when, when in uh, Exodus 14, or 16, rather, where they rebelled against the leadership of Moses and then began to tempt and test God, and they were all swallowed up by the destroyer, if you will. And, and what all Paul is saying is all of that history helps us understand that God is serious about sin and rebellion. And, and, and he takes it seriously. And Paul tells them, things to avoid, right? What do you say? Here, here they are. He just gives these four things. Don't be idolatrous. Don't commit sexual immorality. Don't test Christ or basically question God's leadership in your life. And that's what they always did. God, uh, God, why is, why are we out here in the wilderness, right? Moses, why have you let us out here in the hot sun? And, and we want to be back in Egypt where the, you know, where the Nile flows and we can eat onions by the, by the, by the shore and, and, and all that good stuff. I mean, they were always questioning and, and, and yet God is the sovereign one. So testing Christ means, again, to just question what God is doing in our life. And then he said, don't complain. Wow, what about that? Don't murmur. Don't complain. Again, chapter 14, we see that happening back in Exodus. We saw, we saw also where God brought serpents into the camp and many, many people were dying of these snake bites. Again, why? Mainly because of their murmuring and complaining. And I know we, again, this can fall into gossip and this can fall, fall into a lot of different areas, but I think, again, we as human beings, we are good at categorizing sin to the big ones, right? Big sins, little sins. And big sins are like murder, robbing a bank. That's what people say when you say, well, all of sin. Well, I'm not a sinner preacher. I never robbed a bank. I never kill anybody. 
All right, whoop-de-doo. I mean, that's what God's saying, whoop-de-doo. Have you ever hated your brother? You ever hated somebody in front of you that cut you off in traffic and you just hate it, you loathe, you're so angry? Jesus said you're guilty of murder in your heart, right? I mean, we, 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 we don't understand how vile human beings are in the sight of a holy God because we have no concept of what holy is because we're human. We can only judge by each other. And so we look at the best person we can see as a little human and we say, oh, I'm pretty close to that. <laughs> and all of us are so far from God. Mother Teresa is corrupt in the sight of God. Billy Graham, he, he, is, he is a sinner. Greg McDaniel, I don't even have to, you're all like, yeah, we already knew that. It doesn't matter who we are or how good we are, how much service we give our hearts. And we all know that if you're honest with yourself, when you are alone with your heart, you know how far away from perfect you are and how far from holy you are. And if we're honest, we realize that that holy God should pour out hell upon us. That's what we deserve. So this is what Paul is reminding us. This is what the Word of God does as we read it. This is why it's so important for Christians to be in the Bible. Because it doesn't just speak to our strengths like so many people do today in this world that call themselves churches. When you show up, they just say how great you are and how wonderful things are. And boy, you did all this and that. Well, you're wonderful. No, the Bible tells us the bare truth of who we are in the sight of a holy God. And that's what we need to know. Because that's the God with whom we have to deal with for eternity. And so it reminds us, even these small things of complaining is vile before a holy God. Now again, let me also remind you this. Paul has not limited our actions to these four things. He's not, he's not saying, don't do these four things. You can do whatever else you want, but don't do these. Obviously not. This is just a general statement, but it's including all sin. Look at verse 6. Because there he said, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That's the point Paul's trying to make. He just gave a few examples, but he said the bottom line is it's what they desired in their heart that was the problem with God. In their heart, they desired evil. And this is, again, this is, this is what we don't quite understand because we're all living in, 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 a, in, a, in an outcome-based society, right? It's all about what you do. How do you look on the outside? What's the outcome of the situation? You may have sinned to get there, but the, the ends justify the means, right? We've all heard that. So even if I had to lie to get there, or if I had to do some dishonest thing to get to a good place, well, it's all good. Folks, that is not true. It's the desire of our heart. So outward actions always come from inner our inner, inner desires. Remember that outward actions always come from inner desires. We don't just accidentally rob a bank one day, if that's what you do, right? You don't just accidentally walk out of a store with things stuck in your bag. There's a desire, right? There's, there's thoughts about things in our hearts and planning and scheming, and then makes its way out. But as Jesus said often, it's not what's outside of a man that makes him defiled. It's what's inside of a man that defiles him because it's what comes out of the heart. And he goes on to list all those things, thieve, thieving and murdering and hating and 
adultery and sexual immorality, all these things come from within our heart and they condemn us. And you know, it's also something we need to realize, it's possible to fake outward actions, isn't it? But it's not possible to fake desire. You can't fake passion. If you really don't love something, you're really not dedicated, it's going to come out soon enough. You're going to get burnt out trying to fake the actions of loving something if you really don't have it. So the warning of verse 12 is basically this. If those who were delivered from Egypt crossed the Red Sea, ate the manna from heaven, drank the water from the rock, and still desired evil and acted upon that from their heart, so can believers today. That's what Paul's trying to get us to understand. Who do we think we are when you're looking at all these people who, who saw the mighty hand of God, they tasted of the grace of God, they drank from the rock that was Christ, and yet they still sinned. A person who believes they are above sin has either redefined sin or grossly underestimated its power. Right? A person who, 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 who believes that they are above sin, you've either redefined what sin is or you have grossly underestimated the power that it can have and the destructive power that it is. So... That's where verse 12 comes in. And look what Paul says there, the advice he finally gives after he lays it out, that man, all of us, every one of us are capable of rebelling against God in our hearts. Therefore, verse 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. There it is. We must take temptation seriously. We must fight sin viciously. And we must rely on God continually as Christians. I mean, I mean, I think of my so many friends and even former pastors who I looked at growing up and thought, man, this, that's an, untou an untouchable as far as sin goes. This, this, this guy is just everything holy powerful preacher what a, a, a huge church and great ministry and man i can just right now off the top of my head count four of those men that have fallen into sin and they're no longer in ministry why because evidently somewhere along the way they underestimated the power of sin in their lives they didn't take temptation seriously they didn't fight sin Viciously, they didn't, they didn't rely on God continually at some point. And that's, that's, not, that, that's for all of us, again, is what Paul's trying to tell us. And if this passage in here tonight, right now, don't, it'd be discouraging, wouldn't it? If we were done now, that's the end, and the passage was over, and all that Paul is saying was, well, guys, sin is real, and it's vicious, and man, look at these people. They were right there with Moses, crossing the Red Sea, watching God's power, led by the cloud, by day and the very pillar of God by night. And if, if they could fall, man, there's no hope for any of us. And that's where we would leave right now and feel. But thank God for verse 13, because here now, after this stern warning comes this glorious comfort. 
Because now Paul goes on to remind us, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it, that you may be able to bear up under it and not fall in to sin. I mean, this is the good news of, of, of the gospel for Christians. This is where we rest, right? What, what comfort for us who are prone and tempted to sin because our flesh wants to, right? Look at these three, three comforts that we, that we get here. Number one, one, comfort number one is that everybody is tempted. That's what it, that's what it says. There's no temptation that, that you're going through that's not common to everybody. And there is a comfort in that, if we're honest, that I'm not the only one dealing with sin and temptation. Cause, cause, because the, the Bible's plain about this. Everybody's tempted. Now, the problem with that comfort is it can also become an excuse. So we've got to be careful. <laughs> we can't just jump from, well, it sure is comforting to know everybody sins. Oh, everybody sins? Oh, yeah, well, then, then I'll sin. So we've got to be careful. Just because everybody's tempted doesn't mean that we need to give in to it and that we're somehow given a pass. Comfort number two, though, is this. And here's the main thing. These three words, this is it. This is really the whole basis for the Christian life. If you had only three words from the Bible to rely on, here they are. God is faithful. That's all we need. God is faithful. We're not, <laughs> but he is. He's faithful in such a way that he not only saves us by his grace, provides the righteousness that we need in Christ. But as we're living and walking in this pilgrim world on our way toward glorification, but as we're being sanctified, he is faithful to us even here because he provides comfort number three, which is there is a way of escape. There's a way of escape from temptation. Basically what that's telling us is we do not have to sin. We do not have to end up like the Israelites who were tempted by the desires of their heart and they gave in. And they did all these things, what, what, whatever immorality or whatever grumbling or whatever selfishness or whatever thing took over, they, they, they gave in. But what the, the Bible's telling us is we don't have to do that as genuine believers in Christ because God is faithful and he's made a way of escape. Therefore, we got to be careful in reading that because here's, here's, the, here's another truth that doesn't mean that it's an automatic thing that we're not going to fall into sin. We can't just, again, presume, well, okay, God's made a way of escape. I'll never have to worry. No, because then he adds verse 14, and look at this. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Do you see that? He didn't just stop by saying, okay, God's going to take care and always make a way of escape and you don't have to worry about it. No, he said, there's a way of escape. Now flee. Take the escape. <laughs> Herschel York, who um, he's a professor at Southern Seminary, also a lifelong friend of mine. I've known him since I was very young. Um, he wrote a commentary on 1 Corinthians. I like what he says about this here. It says, God's grace is not supplied to us passively as though defeating sin is automatic or easy. 
In the relentless onslaught of temptation, genuine believers must actively avail themselves of God's promised grace and flee from idolatry. So yes, God has given us grace and says you don't have to sin, but that's not automatic. It means that we as believers must take that initiative because of the grace that's been bestowed in us, that desire that God has given us. It's not our desire, but it's the desire that has come from Christ to please our Father. That desire causes us to flee from sin, to take that escape hatch, right? And not try to stand up to sin in our, in our own strength, not to say, well, I've been a Christian for 25 years. I can handle a little of this. No, you can't. We, we can't. I mean, how many people have fallen back into the sin because they, they get so confident in their flesh after many, many years of victory and think, oh, I can handle some of this. I can do that. I can go there. I can be around this. I can drink that or I can take that. I can do, no, man, we cannot ever Give no place to the devil, the Bible says. Give no foothold to the enemy. As we preached a few weeks ago, make no treaty with the enemy. We cannot play with sin. We have to run. We have to flee. That, that's how we stand up against the darts and the fiery trials of the evil one. How, how, do, we, how, do, how do we resist the devil? We flee from him. That's how we resist him. And we run to Christ. And he resists him. Proverbs 18.10 reminds us here by saying, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A righteous man doesn't count on his righteousness to defeat his sin. The righteous man is righteous because he runs to Christ and hides in him. Does that make sense? Man, that's, that, that should be, that's got to be our reaction, our, our, our go-to. When, when we're tempted, the first thing we've got to do is start praying pronto. Pronto is Greek for immediately. <laughs> it's not really, but it sounds good, right? I mean, right that second. Pray that moment. God, Take this away from it. I don't want this. Give me the ability not to fall into this. I am running to you, Lord. And, I, and I've said this for years. You will find it very hard to go ahead and be involved in whatever sin it is you're trying to do while you're communicating with the one who laid down his life to save you from it. While you're praying to the one who took nails in his hands and feet Skull was crushed and pierced with a crown of thorns. He was mocked and spit upon, and he took the very wrath, the eternal hell that you deserve in his body and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did that for you. Now you sin against him while you're talking to him. You see my point? That's what prayer, that's why prayer is so powerful for us as believers. That's why it's the first thing we've got to do constantly but especially when temptation's near. That's how you run into that high tower and are saved. You pray and plead with your Savior and he'll give you the grace. This kind of harkens back to the idea, I'll close with this. It kind of harkens back to the idea from Sunday's message when we saw Gilgal and we re realized again that it was at Gilgal 
that God renewed his covenant with his people. But it was also in the next chapter at Gilgal where Saul broke that covenant. And I mentioned, I said, may we live at Gilgal. May we live in Gilgal. What what does that mean? Well, may we live in Gilgal, the place that reminds us that we can never keep our covenant with God and God can never break his covenant with us. That's kind of what Paul's saying here. Never trust yourself. It's not you. You're not keeping that covenant. You break the covenant. But God doesn't. So run to him. Flee to him. Rest in him. He is our strong tower. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful once again for the reminder of your word that sin is deceitful. It always has been. And it will always win when we give it an inch. It will take the mile and more. That's why, Father, you tell us to give no place to it. Not to play with it, but to mortify it, to kill it, to chop its head off, to run from it. And the way we do that, the way we mortify and kill the sin in our lives and flee the temptation is is to flee to you, to run to you, to hide in you, to pray to you, to ask you for the desire to love you more than we love our pleasure. So Father, we need you. And as a church right now, we just gather together all the people in this room and we pray that you will give us the grace to glorify you by choosing you when we're tempted above the sin that we're tempted to do. Only you can do that for us, Father. But we will praise you, gloriously praise you for that victory. And you will be well pleased in our lives. That's our prayer to give you glory. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.